Okay, um, so I'm going to be talking about a lot of the same sort of themes and discourses that uh, Yushoshi's introduced us to, but at the other end of the century. Um, so when there's been time to have a sort of cultural response or appropriation of this discourse in many ways. Um, and even though we've spoken about this so many times, I think it's, it's even surprising now how similar these things are that we've come to be working at from such different perspectives. Um, so I'm going to ta start off uh, with a quotation. Um, so, how one's heart warms towards the fine young fellows who month by month are pouring into the metropolis and the other great commercial centres of the country. Life is all before them, with its difficulties and dangers, its temptations and opportunities, its successes and discouragements. Uh, this is the opening to John Thane Davidson's The City Youth, which was written in 1886, uh, and that's him there for anybody that's interested. Uh, and this is one of many, many texts that were aimed at such young men in the latter part of the 19th century. Um, and those texts in themselves were part of a, what was by that time a small industry of advice and guidance um, from long-standing institutions such as the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, uh, to dedicated lectures, church services of different denominations. Um, journals and community groups that were all aimed specifically at young men coming from the country to the city. And this intervention was often justified by insisting on the new and highly dangerous solitariness of these urban young men, um, who are usually sort of lower middle class, so they're very much the Clark class, um, who are imagined as leaving well-established and close-knit communities in the country, um, and also supportive domestic circles and launching themselves alone into a great city, which was usually London. So Davidson continues, Magna Civitas Magna Solitudo, uh, which translates as a great city is a great solitude, um, is an old, old proverb whose truthfulness many a young man can confirm. No place perhaps seeming to him more lonely than the vast metropolis, whilst as yet among its teeming thousands there is scarcely one whose hand he can grasp or whose face he can recognise. Um, and I think we, from Yushoshi's paper, we can see that this is a common discourse that was repeated from the beginning of the century, almost without change. Um, except that now, um, what is generally thought to be needed in response to this was a new, reliable community. Uh, a replacement family that could offer guidance and advice without threatening the young man's newly found independence and maturity, so the help of a pseudo-brother or friend rather than an authority figure or institution. Um, and exactly this, of course, conveniently, is offered by the text. Uh, it's been the author's aim in the preparation of these pages to supply a genial and useful friend who will talk cheerily yet seriously to the newcomer and put him on his guard against the moral dangers by which he is certain to be beset. Um, so there's been a lot written about this discourse of advice for young men, um, especially the institutions that come out of it or feed into it, like the YMCA or the Scouting Movement or the White Cross League. Um, and the majority of this work is focused on the particular types of power being exercised, um, so the formation of masculinity in certain ways and the imposition of this model on colonised countries, which is all very interesting and important work. Um, I want to see what can be added to this by thinking about how the discourse problematised solitude as a distinctly modern and urban issue, um, and one that affected young men in particular, which I think is where this deviates particularly from what Dickens is representing the middle-aged Clark as being lonely. Um, and also I want to think about what is left out of the way that this discourse thinks about solitude. 
Um, and I think this is important because we're now again in a position where, as a culture, we're starting to worry about the solitariness of young people particularly, and urbanised young people particularly. Um, and again, they're thinking about it as a new modern issue. Um, and I'm going to do this by looking at a short novella uh, written in 1880. I've put, I've put 1888, I think it might be 1889, but yeah, <laughs> um, by J.M. Barry, um, who you may better know as the author of Peter Pan, uh, which is slightly later than this. Um, so The Superfluous Man was published in serial form in a journal called The Young Man, uh, which claimed as its audience precisely that constituency of solitary urban young gentlemen. Not gentlemen, sorry, young clerks, but they call them gentlemen. Um, and like Davidson's text, and Davidson is also a common writer in this journal, by the way, um, and they advertise his books a lot. Um, the journal always represented such solitariness as highly problematic and claimed that, it would, that the journal itself would bring together various elements of what was by this time quite a, a dispersed um, existing young men culture to provide a guide to that alternative community. Um, and unsurprisingly, Barry's text takes the form of exactly this narrative. Uh, so he has a young man called Dan Moore coming from a small village in Ireland to make his fortune in London. Uh, but my argument is going to be that Barry uh, uses this narrative actually to point out some of the weak spots or criticise some of the assumptions that are inherent in that um, young men discourse, particularly by representing solitude in a very different way. So to start off with a bit more about the journal... Um, the Young Man was a monthly journal edited by Frederick Atkins. It ran between 1887 and 1915. Um, its audience does seem to have been largely young men uh, in England, America and the colonies, so it was circulating through the colonies by, by the end of its circulation. Um, and their definition of young could be anything between about 15 and 45. So they have a, an, <laughs> they have a, a feature called Successful Young Men of Today, and not one of those is under 30. Um, so very much it's unmarried is, is more important. It's more of an economic and a marital status than an age thing. Um, and in many ways, this, this journal was exploiting a ready-made audience uh, that was provided by the last 40 years of YMCA work. Um, so it starts off very much aiming itself at the same sort of constituency, doing a lot of YMCA news, um, uh, correspondences with different people, having YMCA members writing in the magazine uh, very quickly becomes quite critical of the YMCA and is distinguishing itself from it as well. Um, so it was using what was quite a recognisable and by that time very well established discourse of self-help and muscular Christianity. So titles like manliness and Christianity, wanted men, namby-pambyism, uh, at what age should a man marry? Um, this was only a paragraph that they managed to get out of Ruskin. But <laughs> still, they were very proud of it. Um, yeah, YMCA news from, from places. Um, How to Succeed by Dr. Thane Davidson. They're very proud of Thane Davidson. Um, overcoming Temptation, this the sort of thing. But also a lot of um, gymnastics, um, the ethics of athletics, sport and play was really important to them. So they had a gymnastics column, they had a, a cycling column, they talked a lot about different kinds of sports. Um, so they were very proud of not just being all about religion and advice, it was about what young men are interested in. Um, but it also... Uh, yeah, so it's part of what... It's, it, how it talks about itself is that it distinguishes itself from what came before it by being independent. Uh, so this is its first article, its first ever um, editorial. It says, we are independent of everything except the blessing of heaven and the help of our readers. Um, and that's how it distinguishes itself mostly from the YMCA, which is an institution, and therefore the magazines that it produces have an interest um, that it doesn't have, supposedly. 
it also commonly claims to have no economic interest at all, which is you know, questionable. Um, but that kind of independence is very much based in community building. So as a journal, it's particularly successful at creating a sense of unity between its content and its readership. Um, and just one way that it does this is through prize competitions. Um, so every issue has a competition, which it also used for market research, and then that also determines the content of the next issues. Um, so this is the first prize competition where they got readers to write in naming the best writer for young men, the best preacher for young men, the best form of mental recreation, the best form of physical exercise, and all of the things that they said that the winner produced appeared in the next journal. Uh, but they also very literally created communities. So they, by the end... By the sort of middle of the 1890s, they were hosting holidays for their readers in Switzerland, um, where you would go and you would, people from the, the Young Woman, which is also a magazine run by the same editor, um, would also come and they'd host dances and lectures and people like Conan Doyle were coming and giving lectures in Switzerland to these groups. Um, and also in their recommending of lectures, books, journals, so forth. Uh, but I think it's important also to recognise that the circulation of this journal relies on the continued need for that community. So it's always insisting on the, the need of its readers for such a community, the newness of that community. Um, and I think this is interesting because you can see a moral, what was a moral discourse or what they're claiming a moral to be a moral discourse becoming an economic model. Um, so the ideal young man, from their point of view, is one always beset with temptations and in need of guidance, is also the ideal consumer from their point of view. Um, so a central part of that narrative, the, the narrative that they, or the character that they're always casting their readers in, is that they are this young man coming to the city, um, and that they're coming from a stable background into instability um, that needs and needing help. Um, and it's important to note, I think, um, that the actual readership seems rarely to conform to that stereotype. Um, so the winner of their first competition was from a small town in Lancashire. So even at the very, very beginning, their first issue was, be, was being circulated far beyond London. Um, later contributors to advice columns and, and so forth uh, seemed to come from very small towns and villages all over the country. They had a, a printer in Scotland, um, and even women were writing in. They were quite proud of this, actually, that women were reading this magazine. Um, so I think it's interesting that the way that they talk about solitariness had far more to do with the taking away of traditional communities and structures of behaviour regulation than the danger of loneliness. Um, loneliness is not a problem that they talk about. They hardly ever mention it as an issue in the journal. Um, it's likewise, from, from regardless of what um, I read out at the beginning, it's hardly ever mentioned in books of advice for young men, um, at least before about 1890. It's not mentioned again in the city youth. Um, as a problem in its own right. What they're more concerned of with is the danger of bad company. Um, so solitude for them is naivety, really. Um, it's being the danger of the young man being led into bad habits and bad situations by not knowing how to discriminate, um, not wanting to return to lodgings at night on their own and turning to a cheap kind of conviviality instead. So solitariness um, works as a shorthand for these people, or writers in this, these kinds of magazines. Uh, for all sorts of vices that they're concerned with, so drinking, gambling, theatres, music halls, all come under the same heading. Um, so Thane Davidson again says that of, ten, of the 10,000 lads that every year go to the bad in London, I'll venture to assert that the ruin of 90% is due to bad company. Who are the people ruining all these people? I have no idea. Um, and an article that I think epitomises the, this 
lack of interest in loneliness, really, um, is one by uh, the Reverend W.J. Dawson, called the Ministry of Books. Um, again, he's saying, a young man's life in the great city must always be beset by many temptations, some of which are among the most difficult for any man to resist. Um, that it's, it's always this loose comradeship that is the problem. Um, but his solution to that is actually don't go out, <laughs> really. Um, don't, don't fall for this loose comradeship. Um, talking about Dickens, actually, Charles Dickens is his main example here of somebody who solved this problem, and particularly he assumes David Copperfield is a straight autobiography. So he's talking about David Copperfield, but also saying that this is Charles Dickens, um, that he had learned to love books, um, and in his solitary room, the great storytellers of an older day absorbed the child. He was least alone when most solitary. His bitterest loneliness was in the crowded London streets. His most joyous moments of existence in that dismal garret with his books. So the book has an ability to guide you um, and to be the, the right kind of companionship, even over any person that you could meet on the streets in London. Um, and I think it's important to see this not only as a sort of attempt to preserve normality or, or no, um, instill certain values, although it was that, obviously, uh, but also to create a sustainable and robust economic model that I think is more recognisable today. I mean, this is very similar behaviour on the part of the journal to women's fashion magazines, for instance, that they're constantly telling us that we should love ourselves, but also you need this makeup to do so. Um, and you need the magazine to tell you which makeup to get. Um, and also social media, the way that we've been talking about social media actually reinforcing rather than solving loneliness. Um, so Barry's story, The Superfluous Man, is the first attempt of this journal to include serialised fiction. They were very proud of him. Um, this was a ramp up for them. Um, it's a bad story. <laughs> I love J.M. Barry. I really do think he's an excellent writer. This is not where you will find that excellence in many ways. He was deliberately writing something that was a formulaic writing to genre. Um, but he can never resist, he's fascinated by genre, I and mean, you think the way that Peter Pan is a sort of amalgamation of different children's genres, um, he can't resist poking fun at it at the same time. Um, so a closer look at this very formulaic, bare-bones structure, really, um, shows Barry using that narrative to gently criticise the genre of which it was a part. Uh, or not so gently, depending on how you feel about it. So the superfluous man begins as if it's just another repeat of this narrative of a young man coming to the country, from the country to the city to try his fortune, kind of Dick Whittington mixed with Pilgrim's Progress type story. And you would expect him to face a series of temptations before finding a berth in an alternative safe community that was hopefully linked to some kind of young men culture or that that would be the way in. But this is not the case. Um, actually, Barry frustrates these expectations at every turn. Um, first of all, the relationship between town and country is not what one would expect from re reading The Young Man. Um, so he's, in the first instalment, he points out that, like a good many of the young men who had been at school with him, uh, this is Dan, the, the main character, uh, he was being starved out of Ballyhewan, which is his Irish village. Um, so it's not a choice to leave the country by any means. Later on, he says he would do anything to return there. He doesn't want to be in London. It's, he doesn't have an option. And when he gets to London, uh, his father's there, which again complicates that kind of comfortable domestic circle growing up and going to the city um, kind of narrative. Um, and his father is actually by far the worst company and worst influence that Dan could ever come across. 
Um, so in some ways he does move to the city and find that bad company, but it's, it's his father. Um, he's, um, he's penniless, he's much more willing to sponge and borrow off Dan than work himself. He drinks a lot, he's a pathological liar. Um, so he's constant, he says he's given to putting too much colour into all of his pictures. And this was a character that Barry would be very interested in and would constantly reuse in his work. Um, and it turns out that the impression that Ballyhewan has of the prosperity of those who have moved away um, is entirely due to fanciful letters that Michael Moore, the father, is been sending home to his local paper. So Barry's sort of poking fun at both that Dick, Dick Whittington story um, and at the press. So we're told that um, he lived two lives, the one from hand to mouth in London and the other magnificently in the dreams he sent to the voice as realities. Um, secondly, he's very quick to undermine this idea that the naive, solitary young man is immediately vulnerable to the influence of bad company. First of all, because he has no money. Um, so he has, it has temptations, this city full of wickedness and sin, but those of the more garish kind do not entice young men whose aim is to avoid starvation. Um, so definitely undermining that idea that um, loose company is the worst thing that you could fall into. Um, but he also objects to the young men being talked about as if they were all the same, and especially naive, uh, uh, more naive, sorry, that's not a word, um, if they were poorer or from more rural areas. Um, so sorry, this is a really big quote, but I think it's, it is important. Um, a great wit once said that, judged by the tracts written on the subject, there were vast numbers of young men who never went out into the street, but they were in danger of their undoing. Um, this is still a common view of young men who are implored at street corners and elsewhere to put themselves into the hands of preachers and lecturers and to run straight home of an evening, as if to attempt to guide their own footsteps were to say goodbye to virtue. But the healthy young man has his eyes open and will not suffer the societies established for looking after him to wrap him in cotton wool. Dan, for instance, was no genius and was often weak and foolish like the rest of us, but he does not draw near London, ready to be taken by the hand and led into wickedness and sin by the first Londoner who offers to show him the way. It had better be admitted of him at once that he would have preferred seeing the Australian cricketers to spending an evening at Exeter Hall. Um, and Barry's getting away with this criticism even in The Young Man because The Young Man is so critical of the YMCA, which is what Exeter Hall represents. Um, that's their main London base. Um, so it's, he is being critical here, and it may seem overly critical for the journal that he's writing in, but actually that kind of builds in that possibility as well. Um, so Dan's already pretty self-reliant and doesn't need young men culture. What he needs is employment. Um, a strong, and this is a strong message underneath this seemingly simple story that the main problems that the young men face in moving to the city are not moral so much as economic. Um, and they're part of wider social injustices that the young man never addresses because the solution is always personal morality for them. Um, so Dan is actually dri driven to drink once, um, but it's by loneliness and precarious employment um, rather than any kind of company. He drinks alone, which is very interesting. Um, and there's a lot of detail about the emotional effect of unemployment on Dan, which again, the young man doesn't go into, um, particularly that he feels apathy um, and feels like a superfluous man. Um, but having said that, the main example of loneliness in the story is not Dan, but another character called Benjamin Gregory, who's a young man that he comes across in the street one night. Um, and this is where the, the criticism takes a little different turn. Um, so unlike Dan, Mr. Gregory is middle class. 
He's from a loving home in the south of England and he's been sent to London with plenty of money and to take a cushy job in a law firm that his father has arranged for him. Um, but this very privilege means that he's too soft to survive in the city, um, even with the best of advantages. So we're told that Dan had always had to fight his own battles, while Gregory left a family circle of which he'd been a pampered idol to be pitchforked into the great city which, in which he did not know a human being. And the result of this is he actually goes mad from loneliness, and he does use those words. Um, and Dan has to save him from throwing himself in the, into the river in, in an episode of madness. Um, and Barry was very interested throughout his career in evolution and heredity, um, so there's an interesting suggestion here that Gregory is weaker than Dan, both from breeding, from, being, from how he's been brought up, and from nature, as he's described almost as a degenerate type. Um, so in the circumstances, many a youth before Gregory has developed a tendency to morbidness that has resulted in disease, either of the mind and the body, or the body. Gregory was weak physically and by no means strong mentally, or he could have conquered this morbidness. Um, and Dan is rewarded for having saved Gregory by being given the job that he had been given, uh, while the weaker man is taken back home by his parents. Um, and there's more of a, so more is to get the offer of Benjamin's place. Um, there's more than a suggestion here that the part of the unemployment problem is the privilege given to men who were less worthy to take it. Um, and that really they should be getting out of the way so that the people who haven't that privilege but have the capacity <coughs> would have room. Um, and this is very far from the gospel of hard work, pure morals and brotherly love that's found in the young man. Um, and also interesting when you think about Barry's own history as somebody who came from a small Scottish village, um, went via university unlike Dan, <laughs> um, but certainly came from working class background um, and was trying to make his way in London. Um, I think all of this is interesting at a time when loneliness, so now, um, loneliness in young people is very much in the news, um, especially loneliness caused by social media. Um, and while I'm very, obviously very far from condoning Barry's potentially eugenic approach to the problem of just kill the middle classes <laughs> or send them home, um, I think there's two ways in which his response to that young men culture uh, speaks to this more recent discourse. Um, first of all, the recognition that media outlets have an investment in the problems that they're claiming to solve is important for us, I think. Um, and the young man is quite like social media in that way. And I think that we're increasingly recognizing that you know, social media is not so social in many ways. Um, but I think it also leads us to the question whether that blame isn't being placed wrongly, or at least simplistically, that to say that young, young adults who have a heavy use of social media platforms are more likely to experience social anxiety and blaming the social media for that kind of scuppers the investigation of whether maybe they're using social media more or needing that community because there are underlying economic problems that are causing that kind of loneliness. So, yes, that's, that's me. <laughs>